All right, while they're going to the back, you can go ahead and turn to 1 Kings chapter 7. 1 Kings chapter 7, we'll continue our verse-by-verse study through this book, and we're going to look at verses 13 through 51 tonight. 1 Kings 7, 13 through 51, and the title of the message tonight is Furnishing God's House. Furnishing God's House, and really what this is is a picture of how our very own souls should be furnished by the Lord. And so 1 Kings chapter 7, verse 13 through 51, first thing we notice in verses 13 and 14 is the furniture in Solomon's temple. This furniture was designed and crafted by this guy named Hiram. He was a master craftsman. He was from the city of Tyre, uh, the same place the king was from, who had the same name. This is a different guy, although he has the same name. In verses 13 through 14, it says, Now King Solomon sent and brought... The New King James Version spells it a little different. It says Hiram, but it's Hiram from Tyre. He was the son of a widow from the tribe of Naphtali, and his father was a man of Tyre, a bronze worker. He was filled with wisdom and understanding and skill in working with all kinds of bronze work. So he came to King Solomon and did all his work. So these people from Tyre, many of them were really famous for their skill in metalworking. We've seen these workers from Tyre already in, in some other aspects of the temple. But the, the most famous and the foremost uh, craftsman in this metalworking was this guy, Hiram. And again, it's not the same Hiram as the king. But ironically here, and I don't know if there's really any connection with this or not, but I find it pretty interesting that this guy, although he was from Tyre, Notice that his mother was from the tribe of Naphtali. It was, his mother was Jewish. His mother was from the people of Israel. So he had a connection to the people of God. He had a connection to these people of Israel. Now again, I don't know if there's any significance to that. There, there, I'm sure there is. I'm just either not smart enough or hadn't dug deep enough to find it. But although this guy had this family connection to the people of God, that, I don't think that's the most important thing for us to see right here. I think the most important thing for us to see in this guy is the God-given gift that he was given. He was given this gift from God to be able to have wisdom and make these, these things out of bronze. And like every time God built a house, he used people like this. Whenever it was time to build the, the tabernacle in the wilderness... God used people that he had gifted with certain gifts to build that tabernacle. When it came time to build Solomon's temple, he used those people with those gifts. Uh, later on, we're not going to look at it for a while, but Zerubbabel will rebuild the temple after this temple was destroyed. and He used people with God-given gifts, and then later on, that Zerubbabel's temple will become known as Herod's temple, when basically it has to be rebuilt again. And so God gifts these certain people with these gifts to be able to use to do His work. You know, the truth of the matter is, God gives every single one of us certain gifts, doesn't He? Every single one of us, whether it's the ability to sing, whether it's the ability to preach or teach or the ability to play your instrument, maybe it's just the ability to pray. Some people are better prayer warriors than others. Maybe it's the gift of administration that we've talked about before. Whatever it may be, you've been given a gift by God and you are to use it to build His house, right? 
you're to use it to build his temple. What's the temple now? We've talked about it over and over again. The temple is the believer, the temple of the Holy Spirit as the church. And so we're to use our God-given talents to build God's church. Well, notice what the first thing Hiram built here was. <clears throat> it was a pair of massive pillars in verse 15. It says, And he cast two pillars of bronze, each one 18 cubits high, and a line of 12 cubits measured the circumference of each one. So these two bronze pillars stood at the entrance of the temple. And most uh, Bible scholars believe that they were not connected to the temple, but they were freestanding out from it, and just the two pillars as you would go towards the inside of the temple. Each one of these pillars was approximately 27 feet tall, 18 feet around, and 3 to 4 inches thick, just the wall of the, of the pillar. Each of these pillars had an ornate top. It's called a capital, we'll see here in the text. And the capital, as it's called, was 7 half feet tall. In verses 16 through 20, we see that. It says, Then he made two capitals of cast bronze to set on the tops of the pillars. The height of one capital was five cubits, and the height of the other capital was five cubits, seven and a half feet. He made a lattice network with reefs of chain work for the capitals which were on top of the pillars. Seven chains for one capital and seven for the other capital. So he made the pillars and two rows of pomegranates above the network all around the cover, all around to cover the capitals that were on top. And thus he did for the other capital. The capitals which were on top of the pillars in the hall were in the shape of lilies, four cubits. The capitals on the two pillars also had pomegranates above uh, by the convex surface which was next to the network, and there were 200 such pomegranates in rows on each of the capitals all around. So these capitals, as they're called, or these uh, really decorated tops of these pillars, uh, they were decorated with rows of fruits and chains of flowers. That's reminiscent of what we saw inside the temple and carved in the walls, right? You remember what that represented? It reminded us of the Garden of Eden. It reminded us of Paradise Lost. And it spoke of now the temple being God's gateway, opening a way back to Paradise Regained. And so even those pillars as you approached the temple reminded uh, the people of that. Uh, the pomegranates that were on these <coughs> capitals, they identified the pillars with the priests who served inside the temple. Uh, the priests' garments, according to Exodus chapter 28, verses 31 through 34, were fringed with pomegranates. Uh, the pomegranates were also symbols of the promised land in Numbers chapter 13 and Deuteronomy chapter 8. So it reminded uh, the priests and their holy work, and it reminded of the promised land. Uh, the lilies that were on those uh, decorated tops were symbols of life and symbols of love. And the Song of Solomon in the Song of Solomon chapter 2 and chapter 6, we see them closely related with those two things. And so it had those ornate tops on those pillars. Well, the meaning of the pillars is explained to us by their unusual names in verses 21 through 22. <clears throat> it says, Solomon set up the pillars by the vestibule of the temple. He set up the pillar on the right and called its name Jachin. And he set up the pillar on the left and called its name Boaz. The tops of the pillars were in the shape of lilies, so the work of the pillars was finished. So these two pillars had names. And those names really tell us something about what these pillars represent. The name Jachin means it is firm or he establishes. 
Now that same verb is used to describe the promise that God made to King David to establish his kingdom forever. To establish him an eternal kingdom. We see that in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and we saw it in 1 Kings chapter 2. So the name Jachin is really a name that would remind the people of God as they approached that temple. Every time they saw those pillars, it would remind them that God has, has promised to firmly and forever establish his kingdom through the line of David. Well, the name Boaz, that's familiar to us, isn't it? That should remind us of who? Class? Who? Ruth? Who was Boaz besides Ruth's husband? It's David's great-grandpa, wasn't it? Boaz was David's great-grandfather who also married Ruth. The name Boaz means strong, or by him he is mighty. Why do we also know Boaz as? I didn't didn't plan for that. The kinsman redeemer, right? Boaz was the kinsman redeemer that redeemed Ruth back. So the name Boaz reminds us that the Lord is mighty to redeem. And every time those people would approach that temple and come close to that temple, they would see those pillars and they would recognize the meanings from those names. So the way God would fulfill the significance of both of these names would ultimately be through the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the pillar. Every time these people approached the temple, they were reminded of that. They were reminded of the promised seed who would come that would be established through the promised eternal line of David that would be the mighty Redeemer, Jesus Christ. So I ask you this question in light of all that. What is the pillar of your life? What is the pillar of our lives? What or who are you relying on for strength and for stability? Who or what are you relying on For redemption, there's only one that you can rely on, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. As Christians, the pillar of our temple, remember, we're the temple. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit if we're saved. The pillar of our temple is Jesus Christ. He is our pillar when everything in life seems to to be giving way. He is our pillar of strength when we feel weak. He is the pillar of mercy when we need forgiveness, the pillar of comfort when we suffer loss and grief, and He is our pillar of hope in times of despair. He is our pillar for everything we need. When Jesus Christ is the pillar of our souls, then whatever may come in this life, whatever you may experience, you're able to say with the psalmist in Psalm 73:26, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Listen, God's strength will allow you to persevere through all the trials of life. It'll allow you to persevere through any trouble you might face until the day when the Lord Jesus Christ fulfills His promise that He made to us in Revelation chapter 3 verse 12 that He who overcomes, I will make Him a pillar in the temple of God. Jesus is the pillar. And when we trust in Him, He promises one day to make us a pillar in the temple of God. Isn't that amazing? Well, the second item that we see in this temple that Hiram made for Solomon was this enormous basin. Verses 23 through 26, it's referred to as a sea. It says, And he made the sea 
of cast bronze, ten cubits from one brim to the other. <clears throat> it was completely round. It was, its height was five cubits, and a line of thirty cubits measured its circumference. Below its brim were ornamental buds encircling it all around, ten to a cubit all the way around the sea. The ornamental buds were cast into two rows when it was cast. It stood on twelve oxen, three looking toward the north, three toward the west, <coughs> three looking toward the south, and three looking toward the east. The sea was set upon them, and all their back parts pointed inward. It was a handbreadth thick, and its, and its brim was shaped like the brim of a cup, like a lily blossom. It contained two thousand baths. So this beautiful bronze sea, as they called it, or basin, it was huge. It had a circumference of 45 feet. It was seven and a half feet deep. Does that remind you of anything? What else was seven and a half feet tall that we just talked about? That capital that was on top of that pillar, right? You know what that tells me? God's grace and mercy is just as deep as it is high. And it's just as high as it is deep. It never runs out. And these bulls pointed for every direction. Those 12 bulls that it set on representing the 12 tribes of Israel, or the oxen as it was called. You know what an oxen represents? It represents a servant. Jesus Christ is pictured as an oxen, as a servant in the Gospels. Those cherubim, one side of their faces that we find in the Bible, one face is that of an oxen, a servant. It speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ being a servant for, for everybody in the entire world, every single direction of the world. He came to be a servant for those people to give His life on the cross for salvation. All of this imagery, uh, it all points to the Lord Jesus Christ. Also, this sea or basin held as much as 12,000 gallons of water. This bronze basin was a place for cleansing for the priests. According to Exodus chapter 30, God told Moses to make a similar basin, although it was a lot smaller, but it was very similar, used for the same reason at the tabernacle. In Exodus 30 verse 18, he said, Make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. Water in this basin at the tabernacle consecrated Aaron and his sons before they performed their priestly duties. Exodus 30 verses 20 through 21 tells us that when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offering throughout their generation. So this was a statute forever. And so this bronze basin built at Solomon's temple, this bronze sea enabled those priests to be able to keep this same commandment that they had to keep back at the tabernacle. And we also see, so did the ten smaller basins that were there that we're about to see in verses 30, uh, 27 through 29. It says, Then he made ten lavers of bronze, and each laver contained forty baths. And each laver was four cubits. On each of the ten carts was a laver, and he put five carts on the right side of the house and five on the left side of the house. He set the sea on the right side of the house toward the southeast. So we see some identical basins here, but they were not as large as the great bronze sea, or basin uh, sea as it was called, or basin. But these smaller ones, they each held over 200 gallons 
of water. It's speaking of all this water for a reason. This huge amount of water in all these basins that's related to purifying and related to cleansing, it speaks to us that God is serious about personal holiness. Serious about these people being cleansed and these sacrifices being purified before they came to Him. See, to perform their sacred duties, these priests had to keep themselves ceremonially uh, ceremonially pure or cleansed through this ritual bath, this ritual cleansing. We know from 2 Chronicles chapter 4, verse 6, that the ten side basins, or side seas as they were called, were to rinse off what was used for burnt offering, and the sea was for the priest to wash in, is what it says. So in other words, in order to do God's work at the temple, both the priests and the sacrifices had to be washed in water. They had to be cleansed by the water. They had to be made clean before God would accept them. First, they washed themselves. Leviticus 16.4 also tells us the priest did. Then they washed the animals that they presented as clean burnt offerings before the Lord. The Lord doesn't accept anything. He doesn't just accept any old offering. He doesn't accept any worship. It has to be done His way. And these priests had to present themselves God's way, and they had to present the burnt offerings God's way. And we have to do the same thing today. God's priests still need cleansing today, except there's two major differences in those priests and today's priests. The first difference is this. Now all God's people are priests. If you're saved, you're a priest. You're a believer priest. That's what 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 tells us. Every believer in Jesus Christ has been called into the holy service of God as a believer priest. 1 Peter 2, 5 tells us that God is building us into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. But now, listen, the atonement has been made for our sins through Christ's sacrifice on the cross. A once-for-all-time atonement. A once-for-all-time sacrifice. So thank goodness there's no need for us to sacrifice any animals. There's no need for us to make any sacrifice of our crops or anything of that nature. Now we offer the sacrifice of our praise. Now we offer the sacrifice of thanksgiving. Now we offer the sacrifice of ourselves to the Lord. We are to proclaim the sacrifice that has already been made. That's what our priestly duty is, to proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ and to pray that the Lord Jesus Christ will bring people into His church, make them temples of the Holy Spirit. In order to do that, in order to offer God service that He'll accept, it has to be holy. It has to be cleansed. We must be clean, in other words. And that brings us to the second major difference between Solomon's temple and us as the temple of God or or the church. The cleansing at the temple was only skin deep. They could just get in that basin and cleanse their skin, cleanse their feet, cleanse their hands, cleanse the sacrifice by washing it. It was only skin deep. It was symbolic. It pointed to the need for a greater cleansing. 
that cleansing has come. Now the great sea, if you will, of God's grace is cleansing us on the inside. Because when we accept the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the Holy Spirit moves in. And He doesn't just clean off our hands. and He doesn't just clean off our feet. He literally cleanses us on the inside. He cleanses our hearts. He gives us a new heart, the Bible says. He makes our souls clean. So it's not just an outer cleansing. For us now, it's an inner cleansing. Well, Solomon also had Hiram make a lot of other smaller items that were used there in the temple, and these actually have some very significant spiritual importance as well. In verses 40 through 47, it says, Hiram made the leaves and the shovels and the bowls, so Hiram finished doing all the work that he was to do for King Solomon for the house of the Lord, the two pillars, the two bowl-shaped capitals that were on top of the pillars, the two networks covering the two bowl-shaped capitals were on top of the pillars. 400 pomegranates for the two networks, two rows of pomegranates for each network uh, to cover the two bowl-shaped capitals that were on top of the pillars. The 10 carts, the 10 labors on the carts, the sea and the 12 oxen under the sea, the pots, the shovels, and the bowls. All these articles which Hiram made for King Solomon for the house of the Lord were of burnished or polished bronze. In the plain of the Jordan, the king had uh, had them cast in clay molds between Succoth and Zaratan. And Solomon did not weigh all the articles because there were so many. The weight of the bronze was not determined. So these temple furnishings here that we see were all made of bronze. Now bronze is not a particularly precious metal, but it is a valuable metal and it is a functional metal. And notice that they used clay to make the molds to cast these bronze utensils in. So the furniture used for service in the temple was made really the very same way we were made. From the earth. From the soil. From the clay. Right? These utensils were made from the clay to serve the Lord in His house. You see the connection? We're made for the very same reason. We are made from the dust of the ground, from the clay of the ground, to serve the Lord. That's what we're here for. The very same reason these utensils were at at Solomon's temple. Well, the pots and the shovels are also mentioned in verse 40 and 45, and the dishes and tongs are mentioned in verse 49. They were patterned after the utensils that Moses used in the tabernacle in Exodus chapter 27. Those utensils were used as part of the Old Testament sacrificial system. Uh, they were designed for sacrifice. You know, we're also called to a life of sacrifice. Those utensils, their whole life, they were used for sacrifice. And our lives are to be sacrificed to the Lord as well. Uh, Again, we don't sacrifice animals. We don't sacrifice grain. We sacrifice ourselves. Jesus Christ has made the once-for-all-time offering atonement, sacrifice for sin. We don't have to sacrifice animals anymore. But our response to that should be giving ourselves as a sacrifice to the Lord. We should do that joyfully. Paul tells us that in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, that we should present ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our reasonable service. That's the least we could do for the sacrifice the Lord Jesus Christ made for us. 
Well, Solomon also added some other equipment to the temple. <clears throat> Verses 48 through 50 says, Thus Solomon had all the furnishings made for the house of the Lord, the altar of gold and the uh, table of gold on which was the showbread, the lamp stands of pure gold, five on the right side and five on the left front of the inner sanctuary, with the flowers and the lamps and the wig trimmers of gold, uh, the basins, the trimmers, the bowls, the ladles, and the censers of pure gold, and the hinges of gold, both for the doors and the inner room, that is the most holy place, and for the doors of the main hall, the temple. So notice the difference <clears throat> in what these utensils or instruments or furnishings, whatever you want to refer to them as, or notice, notice what they're made out of. These utensils in these verses are really close to the holy of holies, right? You notice that? They're closer to God. They're closer to God's presence. And they're not made out of bronze anymore. They're made out of pure gold, the most precious thing that Solomon could make them out of because they were directly in the presence of God. Folks, that's the very same thing we should do. That's the same attitude we should have. When we come to God, we should bring Him our best and the very first that we have. That's what Solomon did. He brought his best to God, and we should do the same thing when we come into the presence of God. Well, notice some of the things that were there. The golden altar was there. The golden altar of the temple represented, represented the prayer life, or the life of prayer, if you will. We know from Exodus chapter 30 that this altar was used in offering incense offerings. And as that incense rose from the altar, they put that incense on that hot coals and the steam would rise. And as it rose from the altar, it signified the prayers ascending to heaven, the prayers of those priests ascending up to the Lord. And the Lord receiving those prayers as a sweet-smelling aroma. King David referred to this in Psalm chapter 141, verse 2, and he said, Let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. So it represented the prayers of the people going up to the Lord. Know what Jesus said in Matthew 21, 13? He said, My house or my temple shall be called a house of prayer. The temple of God should be a house of prayer. What is the temple of God right now? It's us, right? We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So as the temple of God, as the temple of Holy Spirit, our prayers should rise to God all the time. We should always be offering a prayer on that altar of incense to rise to the Lord. The Bible says pray without ceasing. And that's what we should be doing as the temple of God. God hears those prayers. He accepts those prayers. He's looking for those prayers. And then next to the golden altar, verse 48 says, was the golden table for the bread of the presence. So every week these priests put 12 loaves of sacred bread on this golden table, uh, probably to represent the 12 tribes of Israel, God's people in their totality is what this represented. The bread was for all of God's people, in other words. The bread was a reminder of God's provision. The same God who gave His children that manna in the wilderness would continue to provide life-sustaining bread. That's what that symbolized. 
This bread was also a sign of God's presence. That's why it was called the bread of the presence. It was always there. The, the bread was always there to signify the presence of God always being there. Signified His desire to have fellowship with His people. Each week, these priests would eat this sacred bread in the presence of the Lord, sharing fellowship with God Himself at God's table. That signifies God's desire to have a relationship with mankind. You know, God still wants that. And God still gives us that same bread. He gives that bread to His people. He wants to have that fellowship with His people. Jesus said this, I am the bread. I am the bread of life. The true bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. John chapter 6 verses 33 and 35. And if we have received Jesus by faith, He says, those who eat of that bread shall never go hungry. It's always there. It's ever present. It is the bread of the presence. The presence of Jesus Christ is always with you. It's always there. Lastly, Solomon's temple <clears throat> tells us was illuminated by the light from these ten golden lampstands. Now, uh, the function of these lampstands was twofold. It was practical, obviously. They needed to be able to see inside the temple to know what to do. But it was also a, has symbolic representation. As Israel's priests entered the house of God, these golden lampstands reminded them, or would have reminded them, of the lights that God put into the heavens when He created the world. It reminded them that God is the source of light, the only and the true source of light. David wrote in Psalm 27.1, The Lord is my light. That light would also guide them to worship God. They couldn't see how to get to the most holy place without that light. Guide them to God. Now we see the fullness of that light in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. John the Baptist in John chapter 1 verse 9 said, Jesus is the true light. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will have the light of life. And who is the light that leads us to the presence of God? We, you cannot get into the presence of God without the light. The Lord Jesus Christ. Everything in that temple was pointing to one thing. To one person, I should say. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. That temple was pretty amazingly furnished, wasn't it, I would say. So I ask you one final question. Is your soul properly furnished? God wants to furnish your soul the very same way this temple was furnished. He wants to furnish your soul with stability, like those mighty pillars. He wants to furnish it with cleansing grace, like that huge basin sea that we talked about. He wants to furnish it with prayer, like rising incense, uh, going up to God in, in a fragrant aroma. He wants to furnish it with spiritual food like the eternal living bread. And He wants to furnish it with shining light like a sanctuary full of holy candles. That's how He wants your soul to be furnished. Is your soul furnished like that? I'm going to tell you how to make it furnished like that if it's not. You make the Lord Jesus Christ at home in your heart. And He'll furnish it that way.
Have you done that? I hope you have tonight.